following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. I want to begin by reading in your hearing the holy, inerrant, infallible, fully authoritative, and all-sufficient word of the one true and living God. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. May God give you ears to hear. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, 
James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Grace Community Church, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. It is so easy to read the Bible and to skip over one of three critical principles of properly handling the word of God and understanding it. First, we are to observe the text, thinking about its immediate context and then its wider context and how it fits into the larger story of the Bible. We are to consider what type of genre it is. Is it historical narrative? Is it wisdom? Is it poetry? Is it an epistle? Is it apocalyptic literature like Daniel or Revelation? And then we are to apply the text. So observe it, and then we are to apply the text, thinking about how the text should be properly applied to us and our circumstances and the world and culture in which we live. But in between these two steps of observation and application, there is one critical step that we cannot afford to overlook, and that is the step of interpretation. Interpretation. Wherein we ask the question, what did this passage mean to its original intended audience? What exactly is God communicating in the passage? What is the passage actually teaching and wanting us to understand? And so before we ask the question, what does this mean to me? We have to ask the question, what does it mean? Period. One of the plagues, I think, of modern preaching today is that in our obsession to show our culture that the Bible really is relevant and meaningful, which isn't inherently a bad desire or obsession, much of our preaching today goes from observation directly to application. And that's partly because we live in an age of instant gratification. We don't care how the meal is cooked, we don't care who cooks it, and we don't care where the meal comes from in terms of its source as long as it tastes good in the end. And we carry that mindset into Sunday mornings. So many have that mindset when they approach the Bible. They think that it is a book primarily written to us because it is a book that is fundamentally about us. And if we can open it and walk away from it with something practical, with something to do, then we tell ourselves that we've handled it correctly. Well, when we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 4 this morning, and when we read the account of our Lord's temptations in the wilderness, just before the dawning of his public ministry, it is so easy for us to walk away thinking that Matthew chapter 4 is a lesson on how the Christian is to wage war against Satan's temptations. How many sermons have you heard about Matthew chapter 4 and how it is a good 
three-step process on how to overcome temptation. But I would submit to you that when we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 4 and we are confronted with our Savior going head-to-head against the serpent, this is not fundamentally about us. If we, for once, can get our eyes off of ourselves and onto our Savior, especially as he is seen in this wilderness scene, we would stand in awe of his impeccable holiness and how, as our confession states, he is every way qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and all-sufficient Savior. When was the last time you were truly taken back and amazed, not just at the Lord's death and resurrection, but by his inherent intrinsic purity, spotlessness, righteousness, and holiness? Matthew 3 ends with our Savior's sacred anointing in the Jordan River. After he is baptized by John the Baptist, the heavens open up and he sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting upon him and the father speaks from heaven saying this this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased and the very next thing that happens again set the chapter number aside set the verse number aside the very next thing that happens is that that same spirit The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That same spirit leads him up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is something monumental happening in the history of redemption. And it is so easily missed if we think that our Lord is just giving us a three-step program on how to fight the devil. Something momentous is happening here. This is not just a random account of our Savior being tempted so that we can turn the account around and make it about us and how to fight off the enemy. Now, to be sure and to be fair, I'm not denying the help that is here for us. But you need to see that this is a momentous moment, a momentous event. What we have here, as Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is the last Adam Stepping onto the stage of human history to undo what the first Adam did. Indeed, to accomplish what the first Adam failed to accomplish. Adam should have driven the serpent out of the Garden of Eden. But instead, he, along with his wife, succumbed to his temptations and thus threw the entire cosmos into decay and death. Well, here we have the last Adam, the true and better Adam, as the song says, who stands as the head and representative of a new humanity, a race not merely born of the flesh, but born of the flesh and of the spirit and infused with the very life of this last Adam. Here you have him going head to head with the serpent who deceived our first parents and brought the entire human race down with them. The reason the Son of God appeared, said the Apostle John, was to destroy the works of the devil. Adam was tempted in a beautiful garden where he had everything he needed to succeed. 
Christ was tempted in a desolate wilderness after having gone without food for 40 days. Think about that. Think about your hangriness after skipping one meal. Can you imagine our Lord in the barren wilderness of Judea, 40 days and 40 nights without food? And that is exactly the time when Satan comes to him, at least when we're told here. It could be, we're not told, that the entire 40 days he was tempted, he was lied to, he was mocked, he had the enemy there in his, in his, in his face. We don't know that. But we are told that after this took place, then the devil came to him with these three strong temptations. And you say, well, it was easy for him because he's God. Be careful of such thinking because you don't want to ever, ever deny the full humanity of Christ. He grew tired. We see him sleeping in the boat. We see him thirsty in the Gospels. We see him hungry. We see him weep. He is human. Was then and is fully human now. Glorified, yes, but human nonetheless. Now, both Adam and, Eve, Adam and Jesus were tempted to eat. Adam from the forbidden fruit, the forbidden tree, and Jesus from his self-sufficiency, his ability to create bread as he would later for the multitudes. Matthew also introduces us here in his gospel to some ironies that he's going to follow through with in the rest of his gospel. That the one who denied himself bread to eat would later take bread and say, this is my body and it's for you. He refused to take bread for himself, but became that bread for his people. Yet, where the, last, where the first Adam fell and where the first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death, this last Adam will succeed and raise a new humanity up to righteousness and life. The first Adam brings humanity down to sin and death, and the last Adam raises his new humanity up to righteousness and life. As Paul says, if because of one man's trespass, Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, back in Genesis 3, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The many will be made righteous. That's what's happening here in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 describes a momentous movement in the history of redemption. A momentous event. But even more parallels and similarities exist between the temptation of Christ and the testing of Israel in the wilderness. So you have similarities between Adam and Jesus, but you have even more similarities between Israel's wilderness temptations and also the temptations of Christ. You remember first and foremost that in, as we saw in Matthew chapter 2, 15, Jesus flees to Egypt with Joseph and Mary as God's son. And Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 tells us that Israel migrated to Egypt as God's firstborn son. You find Jesus in Matthew 3, baptized in the Jordan, and then you have Israel, according to 1 Corinthians 10, baptized in the Red Sea during the crossing. 
You have Jesus tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, and you have Israel wandering, being tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus succeeds in the wilderness and begins to expel the serpent from the cosmos, whereas Israel fails in the wilderness and fails to expel the inhabitants of Canaan, something that would eventually happen through Joshua, ironically, whose name is that of our Lord's. You see, when God initially commanded Pharaoh to let his people go, God told Moses, then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, Exodus 4.22. God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. And then do you remember Matthew 2.15, where Matthew quoted from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, saying, out of Egypt I called my son and applies it to Christ. So both Israel and Jesus were tested in the wilderness. God's son, Israel, was tested for 40 years, while Jesus was tested for 40 days. And we know that we are meant to see these parallels because every time Jesus quoted Scripture to ward off Satan's temptations, the passages that he references are from Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, and Deuteronomy yeah, 6.13. The very passages that relate to Israel's wandering through the wilderness for those 40 years. But last but not least, another similarity is worth pointing out. You see, just before Israel was tested in the wilderness, God delivered the people of Israel through the waters of the Red Sea so that Paul is able to call this Israel's baptism in 1 Corinthians 10.2. They were baptized in the sea. And as we come to the Gospel of Matthew, just before Jesus is tested, we see him baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. So the parallels are very evident. And so this is more than just a random account of Jesus being tempted. Matthew is fixing our eyes on the last Adam who will begin to drive out the serpent that the first Adam failed to drive out. And Matthew wants us to see that this Jesus is the true son of God who, unlike Israel, who fell and died in the wilderness, will succeed and bring himself and his people into the promised rest of the promised land of the promised new creation. One writer says, Whereas Israel failed and worshipped the golden calf, the Son of God will refuse to worship the creature, and he will worship God alone. So Matthew, began, Matthew 4 brings us face to face with our sinless Savior, a reality that we sometimes take for granted and fail to appreciate. He, as Hebrew says, is holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners like us, and, and yet in his grace, joined to sinners like us. Let's look at verse 1. Jesus, it says, was led, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God, who came upon him just moments earlier, now drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We ask the question, does God tempt us to sin? And we are told in James chapter 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
And James goes on in verse 13 of chapter one and says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire or lust. Then desire or lust, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God never tempts anyone to sin. He doesn't tempt us towards sin, but we need to understand the opposite reality or the equally truthful reality that he does test the righteous. He does test his people. Psalm 11 verse 5 says, Yahweh tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And the one who's tempting here is none other than the adversary, the, the devil, a word that means accuser or slanderer. He's the one who, according to Revelation 12, 10, accuses believers day and night before our God. He is the slanderer. He is the accuser. He brings forth accusation after accusation. How can you justify that one down there? Look at what he's doing down there. You call him your child. Look at what he's doing. Look what she's doing. Look what she's giving into. Look what she's saying down there. Day and night, this accuser accuses the people of God before the throne of God. And so we are tempted by Satan for evil, but we are tested by God for good. And we know that throughout the rest of Scripture. And so what God is doing here is not discovering whether or not his son will obey him under pressure, but God is revealing for our sake for our good, that this is one we can rely on. Later on in Hebrews, we're going to learn that he is a sinless, faithful high priest who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, which is why we can flee to him for help. This is for our sake. This is for our sake. And so the question is asked often, could Jesus have truly sinned? We have to remember that he was fully man, and therefore he was fully tempted. He was hungry. He's tempted to turn stones into bread. He was tired. The cross was set before him. And it was, if he went to the cross, he, as Psalm 2 had said, would inherit the nations. But it would be through the road of suffering. And here he is tempted with a shortcut to glory. A crown without a cross. We have to remember also that he is fully God. And as James says, he, God, cannot be tempted by evil. And so we have to understand that while we cannot divide Christ's two natures, his human nature and his divine nature, we also should be careful to distinguish them at times. And this is one of those times. Well, look at the first temptation. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I want you to imagine 40 days. We're talking about, I mean, here we are in the matter of a few hours gathered this morning, right? But imagine 40 days starting tomorrow and we go through the next week and the next week and the next week and the next week. 40 days of our Lord preparing for his grand work. He's alone, presumably with his father, being strengthened by the spirit but he's being tested that we might know him to be a suitable savior and the enemy has him out there 
and he is launching a full-blown attack against him. And he will emerge victorious, but still, this is 40 days and 40 nights. Our Savior, alone in the wilderness. And after these 40 days, the tempter, the tempter, verse 3, came to him and said, if you were the Son of God, remember that was the declaration at his baptism just a few verses earlier, this is my beloved Son. And the devil picks up on that and says, if you're God's Son, command these stones to become bread. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. And so we have to ask, what is the temptation here? And some commentators say, well, it was an issue of timing. It wasn't the Father's timing for him to eat bread, and we're going to see that at the end of the passage. But I think personally that this is a temptation to use his divine power and privileges for his own good and benefit. When we know that he emptied himself, according to Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself, became a slave to God and to his people in order to redeem a people for God. He did not come to exercise his power for himself. He came to exercise his power for the glory of God and the good of his people. This was not the time for it. This was not the time for our Lord to gratify himself. And so the temptations are as follows. There's the temptation for provision, the temptation for protection, and the temptation to attain possession. Or as another writer put it, self-gratification, self-protection, and self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. Our Lord here responds to the tempter, but he answered, verse 4, it is written, and he points back to the wilderness temptation, back to the time of the wilderness trials, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone. He doesn't deny the importance of bread. Christians been talking about First John and the docetists and how they would deny certain things that are good and necessary for the body. He's not saying, we don't need bread at all. He's saying, man shall not live by bread alone. Alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just an aside really quick, this kind of helps us understand what the nature of what the Bible is. They are the words that proceed from the mouth of God. As 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 teaches us, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. It's breathed out. It's, these are the words that have come from the very mouth of God. Of God, And Jesus says that's what man is meant to live on. That's what Jesus was living on. When he came to this world, he says, I come not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. He would also go on to say that his food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' true sustenance, what gave him strength, what gave him something to look forward to, the way we look forward to a hearty meal, what gave him something to look forward to was obeying the words of his father. Temptation number two. Satan continues. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Many believe that this was the backside of the temple overlooking the Kidron Valley. I looked it up online. It's a huge, steep fall from the top to the bottom of this valley. I mean, I kind of got dizzy just looking up at the pinnacle here. Takes him up to this place and says to him, if you were the son of God, as was just declared in your baptism, throw yourself down. 
Throw yourself down, for it is written, and he quotes Psalm 91, what Christian read earlier. He will command his angels concerning you. And it also says, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Again, it's very significant to see the similarities between Adam's temptation and our Lord's temptation. Adam was tempted to eat from the forbidden tree. Jesus was tempted to eat from his all-sufficiency, his self-sufficiency, his ability to create out of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. Secondly, he is tempted to acquire a type of knowledge that is not the way to acquire this knowledge. In other words, if you're the son of God, let's see if, let's see if the father will come through for you and you really know that he's for you. You really know that he's there to catch you. But if you notice, in Psalm 91, he's not talking about test, randomly testing the Lord. He's talking about God guarding you, and here's the part he leaves out, in all your ways. In other words, as you go about your daily life, as you go about making God your treasure and your highest prize and cherished possession, God, your Lord, your everything, God will protect you in all your ways lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's very similar to what the Lord told his disciples that as they were to go out and people tried to poison them, they'd be spared from that poison, right? They'd be spared from snake bites later. And as we see that, we see it later in the Apostle Paul who stuck his hand in there and got bit by that viper and was healed. Protection as you go about your mission on this world. That's the idea here. But Satan takes it out of context, which tells us that Satan does know the word of God. There's a reason the cults exist today because Satan knows the word of God. And at some times in our lives, he uses the word of God against us. How many of you have been bound for a season, for months, based upon the mishandling of a certain passage? How many of you have been plagued with guilt and shame because of this one little passage that the enemy seems to be throwing at you? He's good at that because he's the accuser. He's the slanderer. He hates the people of God because he hates the glory of God. And so he uses the Bible here to try to tempt Jesus to see if the Father will really come through and pull through for him. Well, Jesus said to him again, in other words, I'm pointing back to what's said. I'm pointing back to the truth of my Father. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test Jesus saw it as him, if he were to do this, he would be putting his father to the test, putting him to the test, putting, testing him to see if he would do something that he didn't promise to do. We see the prosperity gospel preachers using this as well. Well, test God, just give all your resources and your money to me and just test him, see what he'll do. See if he pour, opens the windows of heaven and he pours out on you. We're not to test him that way. We're to go about all our ways, faithfully serving him, faithfully looking to him. And if he chooses to protect us, he will protect us. But if it's our time to go, if it's our time to suffer, we have to understand that it's all the sovereign plan of God. Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, then we come to temptation number three. The devil, again, took him to a very high mountain. And we don't know, commentators don't know if this is a literal mountain, which... You know, did he transport him miraculously to 
you know, Mount Everest or somewhere. Uh, many believe that this is an actual vision that he received here, that they were on this high mountain, and from that high mountain they could see all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. The flat earthers love this, by the way, because they say, oh, see, you can see all the kingdoms of the world from one point in the world. Um, <laughs> the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, their glory. He always leaves out the sin, doesn't he? He tries to make this world look beautiful in all of its ways, and it leaves out the sin. He always hides the bait. He always hides the hook inside the bait. Now, we have to understand and acknowledge that some people say, well, it wasn't Satan's to give. We are told by Jesus later on in the Gospel of John that Satan is the ruler of this world. We are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan is called the god of this world. So Satan has some sort of reign and authority. Even if you read the Old Testament, you find how certain nations after the, the, the Tower of Babel were dispersed and they, because of their foolishness, were given and trusted to these demons. They were, they, they were, they were as a punishment, given to demons. And so we know in some way these rulers and authorities that we read about throughout the Bible have some sort of authority or control over the world. Obviously, it doesn't supersede God's supremacy or God's sovereignty, but they have some sort of control over the world and the way it runs and the way they influence you, right? I mean, you see that in the book of Daniel where certain demons are controlling certain kings and princes and their decisions. Satan promises all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, which is a problem because if you read Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm chapter 2, Someone else had promised Jesus the kingdom, the glory, the honor, and it was his father. He would inherit the nations by his obedience unto death. And so Jesus responds and he said to him, Satan says, all these I will give to you, verse 9, if you will fall down. And this is the highest degree of worship here. This is a falling down, prostrate to the ground, and worshiping me, ascribing to me what you have ascribed to God. This is interesting. I was reading um, about Adolf Hitler during the World War, and Adolf Hitler had said to his henchmen, we can lie to the people now, but after we, will have, after we have victory, no one will remember. He meant that no one would later care about his lies because he would bring glory to Germany, of course, and then a new kingdom would emerge, would encompass Czechoslovakia, the Sudanland, Poland, the Low Countries, Belgium, Netherlands, France, England, and then the world. And then Hitler made a notation in his diary that said, Today I have made a covenant with Satan for all the kingdoms of the world and for all their glory. Referencing this passage. Thank God our God had other plans. Well, Jesus responds to this temptation. And some of you might be asking, I don't see how these are really temptations. I mean, I'm tempted with these things over here. I'm not tempted with... Turning stones into bread. Well, after 40 days, you might. 
after preparing for an intense three years of public ministry where you will heal and uh, perform exorcisms and go to the cross out of obedience to the Father, you'd be tempted. This was a shortcut to glory. God promised him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory through the cross. Satan promised all the kingdoms of the world and their glory if he would just fall down in an instant and worship him. The promises that the devil makes are for much, but yet he has very power to actually, very little power to actually deliver upon his promises. Always lead to sin, always lead to shame, always lead to death. Well, Jesus responds in verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, quoting Deuteronomy 6, and him only shall you serve. That word only is very important. Very important. No one can serve two masters. You can only serve one master faithfully, religiously, devotedly. And Jesus knew that. And the Father knows that. Which is important because we live in a day where it's okay for you to worship God and then also worship other things. Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Well, then notice this. This is, this is ironic here because Jesus is responding to Satan from Scripture. Satan initially throws out Scripture from Psalm 91, and yet notice the outcome now. Verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The irony, of course, is that Satan said, hey, throw yourself down and watch God's angels be sent after you. You just fall down, and right before you hit the ground, you float. The angels catch you. Well, the angels do pull through by the command of their father because they don't do anything independent of God's command. Psalm 145 calls them the angelic host who do the Lord's commands. So the father does send angels, as Psalm 91 says, but it wasn't in obedience to Satan. It was in accordance with his timing. And not only that, but the first temptation to turn stones into bread, the father pulls through, as it were, because the word in the Greek, ministering to him, they were ministering to him, is used elsewhere in the Bible to talk about literally serving food. R.C. Sproul goes as far as saying that this was probably the most splendid meal our Lord ever had. There's good reason to believe that they came and they fed the Lord Jesus. Delicious meal. That's how the word is used elsewhere. Well, Jesus emerges from that. He hears that John the Baptist had been arrested. And many take this to be a cowardly move on the Lord Jesus Christ's part. That when he heard that John was arrested, he fled. But remember, Herod was over Galilee. He was over these regions. So one commentator goes as far as saying, no, this is the Lord's boldness in going to the heat of the the battle. He goes to Galilee. He doesn't go to hide. In fact, by the end of the chapter here, his fame is spreading throughout all the regions. So he's not hiding from Herod. He's going and saying, John came, did his time, was a burning and shining lamp. They've snuffed him out. Well, the light of the world is going into this darkness now. That's the point here in this verse. That's the point here in this passage. Verse 13, now leaving Nazareth, he went up and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is why he fled. It wasn't to flee from Herod. 
It was so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words, he went because this was the father's will. He would fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, the very passage that we love to read at Christmas time. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. It begins with this light coming to the darkest regions of the land. Galilee of the Gentiles. This was a very dark place. This was not the center of Jerusalem where the cult worship was, where they had sacrifices and priests. This was Galilee of the Gentiles, the Decapolis, for crying out loud, as we're going to see later on, where we have this demoniac that's cutting himself, demon-possessed with a legion of angels, legion of fallen angels. He's going into the thick black night in accordance with Isaiah chapter 9, So that what Isaiah said might be fulfilled, verse 15, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the very first two places that fell during the Assyrian invasion, the very first two places that fell because of sin are the very first two places that the Lord who promised the exile goes to seek out a people for himself. That is grace. That is grace and mercy. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Friends, this is the light of the world who has come and has gone, not first and foremost to Jerusalem, where people were a little more civilized and behaved. He goes to the darkest place in the region, and there he begins his public ministry. There he sets up his headquarters. That should tell us something about our mission in the world. We have this false notion of holiness that says that we are to live entirely separated and cut off from sinful people, our Lord tells us, I'm sending you into the world, not to be of the world, I'm sending you into the world as my representatives to be salt and light in that dark world. We are to be in the world, not of it, but in it, around people, How are you going to shed any kind of light if you're secluded, if you're never around people who need to hear the truth? And not only that, but it gets to the point where some Christians begin to judge unbelievers because of their behavior. And Paul says, you're not to judge the unbeliever. You can judge one another as believers and and challenge one another, but do not judge the unbeliever. He's already dead in his sins. He already loves the darkness. He's on his way to hell. Called to imitate him here and going to the darkest of the dark and not running, not hiding, but shining and sprinkling salt. Well, from that time, we read that Jesus began to preach, and the idea is that he began something that would continue the rest of his ministry. And what was the very first word that he preached? It was repent. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interesting that he rejects Satan's offer to inherit the kingdoms by bowing to Satan and then proceeds forth to then proclaim the kingdom that will spread over all the kingdoms eventually. And it will be a kingdom that swallows up all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And it will be the last standing kingdom. So it's interesting how kingdoms are promised to him and the very first thing Jesus begins to do is proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Now, this is interesting because so often we think the gospel is simply about people being saved from sin, being taken out of their hell into heaven. But the good news that as we're going to see in Matthew's gospel throughout the coming months 
is that it is the good news of the kingdom. When was the last time you shared the gospel and it centered around the kingdom of God? I get that you share the gospel that centers around the king, the crucified, risen, reigning, returning king. But do you ever share the gospel in light of the fact that it is a gospel, a good news about a kingdom that has come and that will eventually take over and be the last standing kingdom for all eternity? It is a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of joy. And the only way to be fit for that kingdom is if you repent and Trust in the one, the king, who came to bring this kingdom to this world. The gospel is about the kingdom, not merely about the king. It's about the king and his kingdom. This is a threat to every kingdom in this world, and it is a threat to all of us who want to build a little kingdom for ourselves. The good news is that an eternal kingdom has come. An eternal kingdom is spreading. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of the world in all their splendor right now. This kingdom is spreading through suffering and trial and martyrdom and discouragement and people being killed. And yet the kingdom continues to spread because it's the kingdom mission of the Son of God and his power that sustains the Great Commission. Repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means to turn from your ways. There's, I've been listening to different podcasts about this word repent lately, and people are so confused about it. People are so threatened by the word repent. They see, well, Jesus is giving a precondition. We're saved by faith and faith alone. We're just resting in Christ alone. Just throwing ourselves on Christ alone. Yes, but to do that, we're not to take away from our Lord's pattern of preaching repentance, John the Baptist's pattern of preaching repentance, Paul's pattern of preaching repentance, and Peter's example of preaching repentance. Repentance is not a work, a precondition that you must meet in order to be fit to then believe in Jesus. Repentance is the call to turn to follow after Christ. You can't lay hold of Christ while you're holding on to yourself and your sin. Your repentance isn't going to be perfect. You're not going to to forsake everything all at once. Repent. This is the call to you this morning. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're reading this from 2,000 years later now, and repent for the kingdom of heaven has already dawned. And it's about to reach its consummation. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, while Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, he sees two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Again, the temptation for me is to go and look at all the historical harmonizings of the gospel and see, well, you really understand that John chapter 1 says that these men met Jesus previously. Because some of these men, as we're going to read about, were disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist pointed them to Jesus. This was not the very first time they met Jesus. In fact, if you read Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls to these disciples out on the boat. And he says, throw your nets in for a catch. And you remember Peter already been fishing all night. But nevertheless, at your word, we'll throw down the net. And so they do it. And this miraculous catch of fish just overtakes the boat and begins to sink. And what does Peter do? Peter falls down and says, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. Depart from me. Well, after all that, if, if, if it were to take Luke's 
account as chronological. This probably happens right after that account. So, but Matthew's not concerned to give us the backstory. He just wants to show us that this one is worthy to be followed. Who is he? He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the king who has come to spread the kingdom of God for the glory of God. He is the one endowed with the spirit of power and glory, grace, chapter 3. And he is the one who has the approval of God the Father. And he says to them, follow me. Follow me. Notice verse 19. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He plays on their familiarity. They're familiar with fishing and what it takes here. Jesus says, I will transform you to be fishers of men. You're fishing for fish right now. There's something more significant. There's something eternally significant. More significant than doing that. He's calling them to full-time discipleship here. We often think of the disciples as just poor Perhaps they were uneducated. Scripture indicates that. But we often think of them as just poor people who just came out of the slums. Friends, these were commercial fishermen. These were not like your average population. These men worked hard. They had businesses. They had boats. Uh, One of the other gospels tells us that they had hired workers. You don't have hired workers if you're dirt poor. Jesus says, follow me. Come after me. He's calling them to discipleship, full-time discipleship. And he's not calling them like the rabbis of the day to come into a certain school, into a certain building. He's, he's an itinerant preacher. They would follow him, and to be a disciple in that day meant that you would follow a rabbi around, you would hear his teachings, and then you would then recite his teachings so that you could teach others those same teachings. So you'd hear it, and you'd be instructed. And then as a disciple, you were expected to then recount those things and explain those things so that you could teach them to others, very much like the way we teach children. Information overload, information overload, and now tell me, tell me that. Explain it to me. It's a way of learning. And that's what he's calling them to. Follow me, and I will make you, transform you to be fishers of men. And notice the response immediately, verse 20. No hesitation, no question, no doubt in their minds. They followed him. They left their nets and followed him. They left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, verse 21, they saw two other brothers, James and John, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Here's a detail that is unlike the last account. Now their father's there. And you know the Ten Commandments. You know the law. Honor your father and your mother. But honor God above your father and mother. And this is what we see here. You remember that time when that guy came up to Jesus and said, I'll follow you, but I I need to go. Let me go first bury my father. It doesn't mean that he was literally dying on the deathbed and he had to go dig a hole. He was saying, you know, he's towards the end of his life. I've got some tending to do. I've got some care to do. Let me just wait till a more opportune time. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. Talk about the hard sayings of Christ. This is radical discipleship. We get all spun up about this lordship salvation stuff, but friends, I can't see any other option in the Bible. He is Lord, and you submit to him as Lord. You don't make him Lord. You don't, you, don't, you don't do everything before you believe in Christ to qualify yourself to make him Lord. You just follow him. You just throw yourself upon him. You forsake whatever you have to forsake and trust in him. And there's going to be other sins that rise up, and you have to forsake them too. 
a lifestyle of repentance, a lifestyle of walking in the light as he is in the light. And so we see James and John with their father Zebedee, and he called them. And verse 22 says, immediately, same response, they left the boat and they left their father and followed him. Imagine the scene. Was the father, was his jaw dropped? Were the hired workers dropped? I don't know. But we're told that James and John here immediately obeyed his call to follow. And I want to point out here as we come closer to the end here that this is a command. And this same command is what we are to command people in the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. How did Jesus make disciples? He commanded them to follow him. We are to command people to follow after Christ. We are to explain Christ, who he is and his attributes in his person and his work and his relation to the Father and the Spirit as the triune God. And then we are to call them to follow him. And this is a call. This is a command. I have a hard time when people use the language of, I just invite you to repent. I just invite you to believe. I would just invite you to consider Jesus. I heard of Rick Warren a while back on national TV just inviting people to give Jesus a 30-day trial, or I forget the, the amount. It was like inviting Jesus to give, inviting the sinner to give Jesus a trial, a test, a try. Friends, Jesus says, follow me. The command of the disciple-making disciple is follow after this Christ. This following today looks differently. We're not physically following him around Judea, Galilee, Capernaum. It's to submit our lives to him. Again, it's not going to look perfectly. You're going to be pruned. You're going to be refined. You're going to be purified. But by and large, you're, you're the student. You're the disciple. You're the one quiet, and you're listening to him through his word, by his spirit, amongst his people, and you are doing what he's called you to do as you live out who he's called you to be. The command is there today, friends, to follow after Christ. There's so many things that get in the way of that. There was a time when Peter was called to follow Christ, and he looked at John and said, because you remember, Jesus had just told Peter the kind of death by which he would glorify God, presumably death by crucifixion. Another is going to dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And Peter turns around and looks at John and says, well, what about him, Lord? Do you remember Jesus' response? If it's my will for him to remain until the end of the age, until I return, basically, what is that to you? You follow me. Christ says, follow me, and we look to other people. We're to look to him. Well, as we come to the end of the account here, after they leave their boat, leave their, boat, leave their father, and they follow after Christ, he then takes these new disciples throughout all Galilee, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. So remember, those who are dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. This is a threefold light. Jesus, number one, is teaching in their synagogues. He is going into these places that are set apart for Jewish worship where they would probably have had Jewish scrolls of the Old Testament. And like the example we see in the gospel of Luke where Jesus picks up the scroll, reads from Isaiah, points to himself and says... Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he points to himself, as Jesus did in Luke 24, 44, where he unpacks the scriptures to his disciples, the Old Testament scriptures, and shows that they all point to him. 
This is what Jesus was doing in these synagogues. Unpacking the Old Testament. Oh, to have one of these white recorders placed in those synagogues in that day. Cassie, go over there and turn it on, sister. Can you imagine? He's teaching in their synagogues. Secondly, he's proclaiming. So this is public preaching of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. It is here because the king is here. It's a kingdom that will spread. It's a kingdom that will expel in the end all traces of the curse, of, the, of sin, of death, of decay. And there will be a new creation where all things are made new in this kingdom. It is a new A kingdom of newness, if you will. And thirdly, this light comes in the form of not just teaching in synagogues, not just proclaiming in the streets, but also healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The the, the, the Greek is very strong here. There's not a single disease that was not healed, not a single affliction that was not dealt with. Jesus is giving a foretaste of the age to come. That's what he's doing. He's not just attesting to the veracity, the truthfulness of his gospel message by signs and wonders. He is showing that this this freedom from leprosy and this freedom from this disease is how my kingdom will look in the end. That's what he's doing here. And so his fame, rightly so, verse 24, spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. Matthew goes out of his way to name the specific infirmities that people in that day considered to be impossible to be healed from. And he says he's healing them all. He's releasing them all. He's restoring them all. His famous spreading even as it is today, in and through the church, the Great Commission. There is nothing outside his authority. That's what he's showing. No no devil, no demon, nothing outside of his authority. No disease. Bring the impossible before the Lord. And he says, I have authority over that too. You come and follow me. And so look at the last verse. And great crowds, verse 25, followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And now that he has this following, again, he seems to have these four personally called disciples, which don't mistake that with apostles yet. He'll appoint them as apostles later on, but he's calling them to follow, to listen to his teachings, to learn his ways, to imitate his teachings to recount his teachings, to retell his teachings. And later on, he will name these apostles after he has gathered these men as he is fishing for them. Now that he has this great crowd, he will then purify this crowd in the very next sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He has a gathering. People are being drawn to the light, being called out of darkness, out of death, out of the corners of the dark corners of the earth in the known world. And now they're there. He has an audience. He has a hearing. He's demonstrated his power. He's healing diseases. He's releasing people from demonic possession and oppression. And now that he has their attention, he will then begin to teach what life looks like in his kingdom. This morning, I ask you to 
Count the cost of discipleship. Count the cost of following after the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not be called to leave your fishing boat. You may not be called to leave your father and your mother. If your father and mother are against you coming to Christ, then there must be a severing. Jesus will teach that later on. But you are for sure and most certainly called to forsake your sin at all costs. To take the call of repentance seriously. Now is the day of repentance. Repentance after the grave is too late. It will be too late. What sin is holding you back, believer, from fully following the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it? Forsake it and turn to him. Oh, will he be able to help me? He has been tempted in every way, as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What do you do in temptation? Do you distract yourself? That's not the way to fight. We're taught by him how to fight, which is to have the word of God at hand. And not just have it at hand, but have it in the heart, believing it, saying, Lord, it's more. You're calling me to worship you alone and serve you alone. And every temptation calls out to us to serve the creature, namely you. Serve yourself right now. You're tired. He comes to us when we're weak, when we're tired. And he says, serve yourself, gratify yourself. This is how you'll know that the Lord is with you. Go do this thing. Let me give you possession and power at no cost, but the cost of your soul. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I've called you to consider the cost of discipleship, but for those of you who are outside of Christ this morning, consider the cost of non-discipleship. There's a cost to following Christ, but there's a greater cost to rejecting Christ. You are not just rejecting an invitation. Let it be known this morning that if you are not in Christ, you are not just looking at an optional invitation to either reject or accept. If you are out of Christ this morning, you are saying no to Christ. You are saying no to God. God says, I've given my son to be the savior of the world. And you and your arrogance say, no, no, no. Consider the cost of non-discipleship. Eternal punishment for the sins that you committed in rebellion and defiance against the living Christ and his kingdom, which has come and which will overtake and dominate. May the last standing reality in the end.